Let us pray. May the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you please be seated? In Romans chapters 9 through 11, Paul is laser-focused on God's sovereignty over all things, including the salvation of his people. The salvation that God freely works and extends comes to those whom he has chosen and is received through his grace by faith in Jesus Christ and him alone. This gospel truth is meant to give assurance and peace to the believer as they come to understand that we contribute nothing to our own salvation. Our lives and our souls are in the most trustworthy hands they could possibly be in, those of Jesus Christ himself. Inevitably, though, at some point when we consider the topics of predestination and election, our minds will shift to those who seem not to be saved. Those who are separated from Jesus. And we worry that God has rejected them, that he has cast them off for all eternity. Of course we wonder about them because some of them are our family and friends. And we long for them to know Jesus, to find a life in him, and to be at peace with God. Well, Paul has these same longings in his heart throughout chapters 9 and 10, and now into 11. Central to his thinking in these chapters are the Jewish people. Paul, of course, is himself a Jew. Though he is apostle to the Gentiles, the Jewish people hold a special place in his heart. He longs for them to know Jesus as the Messiah that they have long been waiting for. And he knows that the Jewish people have a unique place in salvation history. They are those whom God chose out of his own sovereign grace to be his people. To be those through whom he would make himself known and ultimately come as Messiah and Savior. Jesus himself was a Jewish man who came to the Jewish people first, as we heard very clearly in our gospel reading. He then sent Jewish apostles out into the world so that the Gentiles, which is the vast majority of all of us in this room, could know him. We could believe in him for salvation. And so the history of Jews and Christians is forever intertwined. Given this reality, the question arises that if salvation comes to us now by grace and faith in Jesus Christ, well then what of the Jewish people? Has God cast them aside? Has he finished with them? And what does Paul's concern for the Jewish people of his time have to do at all with us today? Well, quite a bit, actually. Not least because we should care about all people who do not know Jesus, regardless of their religious background. 
The church's mission is to love our God and witness to Jesus to an unbelieving world. Our passage today, yes, shows us that some will, in fact, reject Christ. And the responsibility for that rests upon themselves. But while that is true, because of who our God is, the gifts of assurance and hope still remain. Paul opens our passage this morning, as he has so often done throughout Romans, with a rhetorical question. I ask then, he writes... Has God rejected his people? You'll remember, hopefully, from last week that Paul discussed how Israel heard and understood the word of God and yet remained a disobedient and contrary people, as he says in Romans 10.21. That being the case, is God done with them? Fair question. Is he like the parent who just can't take it anymore and throws up his hands and says, have it your way. By no means, Paul tells us. Not in the slightest. All right, well then how could that be? Because if salvation is found in Christ alone, and if that salvation is through God's electing grace, and the Jewish people of Paul's day mostly seem to be rejecting Christ, then the idea that God has put them aside seems like an inescapable conclusion. And so is that what's happened here? Well, we'll answer that in a minute. But first, we need to be very clear on something else. Scripture teaches us that salvation comes about through God's election and that not all people are saved. Now, many people will hear that and think, well, God must be cruel then, choosing some and not others just because he didn't feel like saving them. We say that God is a loving father, but that sounds more like a tyrant. And so what do we say to that? Well, we answer it first by saying that Scripture doesn't always answer the questions we want it to. But it does show us things. And one of the things that the scriptures are very clear on is that God has acted to save. He sent Christ to live and die for us, laying down his life freely as the atoning sacrifice for our sin, and not for ours only, but the sins of the whole world. You see, so often when the conversation focuses on predestination and election, we want to focus on those who seem to be on the outside, forgetting that the scriptures have far more to say about the Lord's sovereign choice to save people. Through no action of our own, no merit of our own, the Lord acted on our behalf. And so when we want to think of God's sovereign will and his gracious choice, perhaps that's what should come to mind. The fact that he has moved to save, that it was his sovereign will and his gracious choice to send Christ for us when he didn't have to. That is what the Bible tells us. The Bible also tells us that not all will receive his grace, and the fault for that is not placed upon God, but upon the people. 
God does not reject people. People reject God. As C.S. Lewis was so fond of saying, the door to hell is locked from the inside. We see the truth of this when we look at the end of our passage, beginning in verse 7. Paul writes, What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. Paul here is drawing a distinction between Israel, the, the ethnic group that God chose to be his witness and to be his people, and the elect as those who obtained it. The members of Israel who did not obtain it were hardened. Paul quotes Deuteronomy and Isaiah, where we are told God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. Now, this seems to disagree with what I just said. (laughs) This seems to indicate that God is causing these people to reject him. Since he's hardening them. The fault must be God's, right? Well, when the scriptures speak of the Lord hardening a heart, what is in view is God turning the person over to their own stubbornness. You can think back to chapter 1 where the, we are told that the Lord turns us over to the lusts of our heart. While it is the Lord's desire that people would turn to him and believe, there are those that simply will not. They will remain in pig-headed unbelief no matter what the Lord does and says, and so eventually the Lord turns them over to their hearts. All right then, off you go. He allows them to live in a state of spiritual blindness because they sinfully refuse to acknowledge him. Because of their own stubborn refusal to accept the work of Christ, they failed to obtain it, as Paul says. Well, what's the it that I have now four times used in quotation marks? Not really helpful for those listening in, but... Well, what Paul has in mind is what he referred to back in chapter 9, where he wrote, Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. But Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. His point is that Israel has attempted to pursue righteousness, but have done so on the wrong basis. They pursued righteousness on the basis of their works, their ability, and their understanding of the law of God. Paul makes this explicit when he says in Romans 9.32 that they failed to reach righteousness because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it was based on works. You see, the reason that some seem to have saving faith in Christ and others don't is because of what each of those groups is putting their faith in. The elect have put their faith in Christ and know that it is through His grace and His grace alone that one can be made righteous. The other side of that is those who have pursued righteousness as an end in and of itself, and so they have placed their faith in themselves and their own abilities. As Paul says in Romans 10.3, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law of righteousness to everyone who believes. 
As Paul has made clear throughout this epistle, it is Christ and Christ alone who justifies us. He is the end. He is the the point, the purpose of all righteousness. And so righteousness is only found in him. If we attempt to attain righteousness on our own to justify ourselves before God, we will always come up short. That is true no matter who you are. No matter what your background is, what your lineage is, whether you're, you're a Jew or a Christian or a Muslim or an atheist or whatever religious background, whether you're a man or a woman, whatever race, none of that matters. The truth is, it is Christ alone who justifies. It is Christ alone who saves. And so to attempt to accomplish that apart from him will always end in failure, regardless of who you are. And so it is Christ alone who is the object of our faith. To attempt to stand before God separate from the work of Christ is to make oneself a self-justifier. And to be a self-justifier is to reject the work of Christ on our behalf. The self-justifier then has more faith in themselves than in Jesus. And so if they remain separated from our Father, that is through their own fault and not His. And such rejection of God only leads to a further hardening of heart. You see, it's not that there's a bunch of people running around out there that would believe if only God would allow it. It's quite the opposite. Those who will ultimately be condemned are those who would not believe no matter what. God does not reject people. People reject him. There are those who will reject Jesus no matter what, and the responsibility for that remains upon them and not God. That's our first point this morning. As we transition... I want to remind us of something that I'm not sure the church has always uh, hit the target on, let's say. Though people will be condemned, and they will only have themselves to blame for it, that's a truth that we should not let go of, we should hold on to that, it is important. At the same time, holding on to that truth, the Christian never, for a single moment, should take any joy in that truth. It can be tempting to look upon an unbelieving world, especially those who are adamantly opposed to the church, and think, well, they're just going to get what they deserve. While it's true that not all will be saved and that God will be just and right in his final judgment, we should never for a single second take joy in anyone's downfall. I don't believe that God takes any joy in condemnation. After all, the scriptures tell us that he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. At times, it doesn't seem like the church has quite had that posture. And so the posture of the church toward those that remain apart from Christ is to be what we spoke about last week. 
We're to mimic that of our father, right? Whose posture it was to have outstretched hands to a wayward and rebellious people. That's what Paul told us at the end of our reading last week, that that is God's posture to Israel, waiting to welcome them back. Because since our God is who he is, we can always have hope for them. We can have hope for the unbelieving world. And so we leave our arms extended out to them as well. To answer the question of if God is finished with his people Israel, Paul points us to a moment of hopelessness for one of the greatest Israelites who has ever lived, the prophet Elijah. Elijah, at this point, was on the run from the evil king Ahab and his wife Jezebel. And it seemed to him like the entire nation was opposed to him, that he was the last faithful believer on earth. And he cries out to God, Lord, they have killed your prophets, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. He's feeling hopeless because in his mind it's only a matter of time before he's joined the rest of the faithful prophets in death. And so he despairs. And the Lord responds to him with one of the most faithful and hopeful lessons that we can possibly learn. He tells Elijah, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to bow. What Elijah could never have known was that the Lord had been at work in the hearts of those who love him. The Lord had kept 7,000 faithful men, and with those faithful men, the faith would be built back up again. Evil, in fact, would not have the last word. Paul's point here is just as the Lord proved and sorry, just as he provided a faithful remnant at that time, so the Lord will provide faithful believers out of Israel in his time. So the Lord will provide faithful believers through all time. Because even though we can't see it, even though we don't seem to notice it, the Lord is always at work. The same is true in our day and age, friends. It can seem like Christianity is in trouble. All the churches are emptying and being sold off. They're being turned into condos and event centers. But I tell you the truth, friends. There are more faithful believers in our city and in our country than we realize. And there will be even more faithful believers because blind eyes are beginning to see the Lord and see his work in and through these difficult days. Do not despair the state of Christianity in our time. Certainly take the time to ask why it's gotten here. Please do that. That's a good question to ask. But do not despair. But rather in hope, the hope that our God is still at work, pray that the Lord would cause the faithful to step forward. That he would move in the hearts and minds of those who love him, that they would begin to speak again. And we would see those who are so close to knowing Jesus, of which there are countless, come to love him. 
We pray that the Lord would do for them, for all of those on the outside of the church who seem not to know Jesus. We pray for them. We pray the Lord would do for them exactly what he did for Paul. That though they are blind today, one day the scales will fall from their eyes so they might see Jesus for who he is. We pray that their hearts of stone would be replaced with hearts of flesh. We pray it for our Jewish friends and neighbors who need Jesus. And we pray it for all those who do not know Jesus because his is the only name under heaven by which a person is saved. And so all people need him. And because of who our God is, we can pray all of that in hope. Because he is the God who works even when we can't see it. And because he is that, we also have the gift of assurance. A a holy confidence, we could say. Friends, what the Lord has promised, it will come to pass. There is no question about it. Again, the question that opened our passage, has God cast aside his people? By no means. You see, friends, throughout the scriptures, God promises that he will not cast aside his people. Psalm 94, just one example. It tells us, for the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. And to show that, Paul points to himself. An Israelite, he reminds his audience, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. That's Paul's conclusion. And he reaches it because Paul himself is a Jew. If God had cast aside his people, Paul would not be writing that letter. Now, while it is true that not every single member of the nation of Israel will be saved, we'll have a lot more to say about that in two weeks, The Lord is true to his promise. He will not cast aside his people. He will keep a people for himself, and he will do so out of his sheer grace. So too, Paul writes, at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. Once again, Paul's story is the evidence of this. Paul did everything he could to keep people from knowing Jesus. He persecuted the church and, while trying to be righteous, acted sinfully. But God, in his mercy, struck him blind, and yes, it was merciful that he did so, so that Paul might truly see the goodness and grace of Jesus Christ. He took the great persecutor of the church and made him the greatest evangelist. And through Paul's ministry, countless people came to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. To see a people be made his, the Lord used the least likely person one would have ever imagined. Not least to show that it's by his grace. The Lord is true to his word, and his word is that he will keep a people to be his own forever. And so, friends, no matter what the world throws at the church, no matter what the world brings to us, that truth will always be there. No matter the truth that some will always reject Jesus, the Christian has hope for ourselves and even those currently apart from Jesus. And we live with the assurance that Jesus is true to his word, and so his church will ultimately prevail. 
He will not leave or forsake his church, nor will the gates of hell prevail against it, because Jesus himself is with us to this very day. He knows his own, and he will keep them. Throughout the rest of this chapter, Paul will have much, much more to say about a people near and dear to his heart. A people that he longs to see come to faith in Christ. And so many of us can think of so many people of varied backgrounds that we feel the same way about. Those that we long to see come to Christ. And so like Paul, we pray for them. And we witness to them. Knowing that our God is at work. That He is faithful. That He is calling a people to be His. With the assurance that he will keep us and in the hope that they might join us. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.